Hello again, fellow travellers, and welcome to number 71 in our globetrotting podcast, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder, just returned from one of the rapidly diminishing range of locations to which we can travel without needing to self-isolate on return, Gibraltar which, along with Iceland and the Faroe Islands, has the rare virtue of being the only three European nations left with quarantine-free green list status. And the three share another quality. They all have very small populations. In their honour, today we're taking a tour of the entire European repertoire of microstates. I think there is some disagreement about what a microstate actually is. Uh, One person's very small state, it seems to me, could be another person's dependency. But I believe that uh, you've been talking to someone who spent a great deal more time than I have thinking about all of this. I have. Quite frankly, I'd never even heard of microstates until you suggested the subject in uh, last week's podcast. Well, I've known about them and the academic study of them actually for a couple of decades, thanks to a Canadian friend called Cleo Pascal. She's an associate fellow of Chatham House, the think tank, and has been researching the subject of microstates along with much else. So as a reliable guide, she's going to be joining us through the programme, starting with what actually constitutes a microstate. Ah, well, this is a complex, controversial topic that can lead to bar fights all around the world. Uh, How do you define a microstate? You can do it by territory, you can do it by population. Um, I tend to use population uh, just because it's, uh, it's what I'm interested in. If you've got a country that's quite small in terms of population, the population is uh, kind of very cohesive. It's, it doesn't have to do with ethnicity or language. It's just, it feels like an extended family. So I'm more interested in population. Okay. But well, look, take me on a, a tour of, uh, of of Europe's micro states, um, uh, alphabetical, geographical, any order you like. Okay. So I've got my, my cheat sheet in front of me. So I will do it by population in descending order. Uh, so you've got, so Malta is okay. half a million. Some people, some people would include Malta. The Maltese would include Malta. I'm not so sh- sure who I would for this purpose, but Malta is about half a million. Uh, Iceland's about 350,000. Andorra's about 80,000. Uh, Monaco's 40. Liechtenstein's 40. San Marino's 35. The Vatican's about 800. And those are the independent ones. Then you get into the ones that have some, they might, they have their own parliament, but they're affiliated to another country that may be taking care of their foreign affairs, for example. So that would be like the Faroe Islands, uh, Jersey, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Gibraltar. The UK has four of them. And uh, Finland has the Island Islands at 30,000. So that's (laughs) generally speaking, the ones you'd find around Europe. Well, as I listened to Cleo's wise words, I realized with increasing alarm that I had only visited two of those uh, tiny states, microstates and dependencies. Um, And those were uh, Andorra and more of that anon and Malta, uh, which I actually really liked. I can't understand why I haven't been back there. Um, It's absolutely awash with wildflowers if you go round about Easter, which is when I went. And uh, the other things I remember very vividly about it um, were a tiny walled 
medieval city called Medina in the very centre of, of the island, up on a hill, which is utterly beautiful. Uh, it's it's built in golden stone with uh, narrow streets and um, broad squares. And the thing I remember best about it were the incredibly beautiful doors and <laughs> door knockers in the shapes of things like dolphins, which really are quite spectacular. Uh, other than that, um, the language is utterly intriguing. And a lot of the houses were only half built because at the time that I went anyway, uh, apparently you had to pay quite a whopping completion tax on the house when you finished it. And so people didn't. Well, I agree that Malta and its uh, little sister Goso is a place of wonders, mostly because of the extraordinary range of uh, cultures that have swept across, leaving their mark. Uh, Valletta, the capital, uh, must be one of the most beautiful places in Europe. But I'm going to say I don't think it quite makes it as a microstate because it is a fully fledged country, a member of the European Union. However, I claim that you have almost certainly been to a third uh, place, but possibly without realising it. There is no border to cross. It is very simply anybody who goes and acts as a tourist in uh, Rome would find it really quite difficult to do all the tourist things without going to St. Peter's Square and the Vatican. The Holy See, of course, being the smallest uh, by population and probably by area as well, uh, country, I think, in the world. Actually, I do remember being astonished and also amused, as uh, I think many other um, visitors have been, by the people who guard the uh, the the Holy See or the Vatican City. They look like something out of Robin Hood. Is that uh, <laughs> fair enough? <laughs> yes, they are the Swiss Guard, the pontifical Swiss Guard, to give them their full title, and they protect the Pope and the Palace of the Vatican. And effectively, they are also the Vatican's very own army. I suppose um, it doesn't do to laugh at people who are an army in that case, but uh, I'm sure they would know how to handle themselves should there be a should there be a problem? My, my only interaction with them has been one of the many people who turn up in in uh, trousers that are deemed to be too short to <laughs> enter St. Peter's. And uh, so, so they are effectively, uh, they're not only the Swiss Guard, they're also the fashion police for uh, St. Peter's Basilica. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, and I, I think I would probably restrict our attention in this. I'm not going to include, as, as Cleo Pascal does, the places like um, the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands, because those are effectively kind of just slightly detached from the UK. I love really the the small the, the seven smallest, which are the, the Holy See, the Vatican City, Gibraltar, San Marino, Liechtenstein, Monaco, the Faroe Islands, and Andorra. Um, all of them with small populations all of them very different and characterful. Well, your mention um, of the Swiss Guard being a uh, a hangover from a bygone age uh, does raise a question uh, in my mind, which is uh, how on earth have these tiny states, uh, particularly the ones that aren't islands, managed to survive? Well, luckily, I asked Cleo Pascal that very question. So they, they all have different reasons for existing. Um, some of them are geographic. So San Marino is at the top of a mountain, which makes it very easy to defend. 
Uh, and Napoleon thought it was adorable, so he decided not to invade. That's kind of the local story. Um, you know, Andorra similarly is in a kind of mountain valley, so uh, pretty easy to defend. Iceland is an island. Uh, the Faroe Islands is an island. Um, the, the Vatican had, had its own military. They all have their own stories. Um, um, but usually what tends to happen is their existence is convenient for larger countries. So mm. it's kind of becomes a neutral zone or a place where you can do financial stuff or hide your money or just they're, they're kind of politically and economically convenient for larger countries generally. And is that it, why they haven't all been taken over? Because you might imagine that Monaco would be subsumed into France and uh, you would, uh, Liechtenstein would probably join up with um, Switzerland, uh, given the choice of that, or Austria. But but they haven't for, for, for uh, because they are states of convenience. Well, there's yeah, they're they're convenient, uh, and 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 that's kind of an, a good way of putting it, which is that they all kind of have a similar uh, have a relationship to a country next door that might have a similar population, uh, sort of language and and uh, originally ethnicity but not culture. The cultures tend to diverge. Um, so they, there may be historical reasons. They may have fought off invasions at, at critical moments. There may have come to compromise at critical moments, but they, they are definitely useful. So the, the France-Monaco relationship, uh, you know, they would have uh, intelligence relationships. Uh, they'd be able to, you know, track money. They'd know who's living there. You know, it's, 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 Convenient. Well, Gibraltar, which I've just come back from, has proved militarily convenient for the British for three centuries. And for a country of only two and a half square miles, there's a ridiculous amount of fortifications, such as those wrapping around Casemates Square. So did you say Casemates? It sounds like a, some kind of dating site for, um, I don't know, business travellers. Or oh, oh, lawyers, I'd, I'd say. But in fact, <laughs> casemates means a room or chamber from which guns are fired. But now in Gibraltar, the atmosphere is very much on peace, tranquility, tourism and indulgence. I'm in Casemates Square and it's a lovely buzz of voices. No traffic flowing through here. Just a sense of being somewhere. Out in the sun, nobody wearing masks apart from the odd waiter. And looking up to the rock. This pinnacle which soars above the Mediterranean provides great views if you have the strength to climb up there or the money to pay for the cable car. I'm just going to sit and listen to these voices because even though it's very much part of the UK, a British overseas territory, I've heard, I think, more Spanish than anything else. That music is coming from Latinos. Restaurant cocktails music bar and a splendid range of dishes that will take you all the way around the world of course fish and chips but then a vegetable biryani jamaica pepper pot 
and Gibraltar is twinned with Kingston in Jamaica. Ten different kinds of pasta and and pizza, Thai green curry, jacket potatoes, anything really. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Good, very good. I was just admiring your amazing menu. I could go around the world. Just, yeah, just Mexican, here. Mexican, Spanish, Italian, Indian, Russian. We try to mix. It's very Portuguese. good. May I ask, where is your accent from? It's my accent, sir. You... Everybody asks them. It's mine. Okay. It's my accent. Okay. Are you from Gibraltar? No, I'm not Gibraltarian. Ah, okay. Monica told me afterwards she's from Eastern Hungary and came to southern Spain to see friends and decided to stay on, even though she spoke neither Spanish nor English at that point. Gibraltar is reliant on people coming across the border each day from Spain, with about 14,000 of them increasing the population by nearly 50%. And that's partly because, well, very little space for living in Gibraltar and residential status is strictly controlled, as I heard a few minutes later from Neve and David, with an occasional contribution from their baby daughter, Georgina. Good. Are you living here or your home? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. How is the life here? Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Pretty laid back. Yeah, um, good for bringing yeah. up little ones, very safe. Yeah. It's nice. You've been here before, I presume? I've, I've been here many times, I'm actually. Sure, yeah. Since, sure, yeah. um, since long before you were born, I think. <laughs> <laughs> first came here in 1982. Oh, um, when the border was shut. It was. Okay, yeah. It was uh, very, very tricky. Dave's but, dad was Gibraltarian. My dad, I'm, I'm from the UK, but my dad was Gibraltarian. So, yeah. Oh, OK. So does that mean you get to live here permanently? Yes. Yeah, I've got... I've got full status, as it were. Even though I've spent most of my life in the UK, I've got the, the red ID card, so you get sort of full status. Oh, that, and have you got one as well? well? No, because class, I'm Irish. So oh, like, wow. Even though we're married, I'm not allowed one. Really? Yeah, but and if that, I live here for five years, then I'm allowed one. And is that just because you're because you're Irish, Irish and not UK? Correct. Really? So if I, was, if I was from the UK and married to him and he right. is red, I'd get one. But you only married him because you wanted to give us a passport, didn't you? It's, it's as if you've known us. Yeah. Oh, no. This is all going very badly wrong. So, so what, what's the... Um, uh, for you, what, I mean, I'm just actually talking about micro-states, small countries. So um, what? why would you want to live somewhere where everybody knows everybody in the whole country? It's a small village feel, isn't it? I like that. I suppose you run into somebody, you can walk into town, and I've met two people I could have popped in for a coffee with today. Yeah. That's really nice. Oh, you've, got everything you, you've got everything you need here. I mean, sports, you, know, you can try all the sports you want here. If you want space, you just have to go across the border. You know, people escape at weekends to get to some of the loveliest countryside you'll ever find. So. Yeah. It, when it's she best grows of both up, worlds, really. Best yeah. of both worlds living here. When she grows up, like... It, if she went missing, you could find her so quickly, couldn't you? Like, find somebody that knows where she is. Oh, she's at the beach, she's here, she's yeah. here. Can, can we talk about sport, though? I mean, yeah, with the sure. greatest respect, Gibraltar hasn't <laughs> made a, a huge impression on the, the world's elite sporting events. How very dare you. <laughs> but they punch above their weight when you think there's only 30,000 people here officially, and yet they do compete in football. You know, they, they compete in most international sports, so... If you think the equivalent of where I'm from in, in Essex, like Leon's, that's the similar sort of population as Canvey Island. You can't imagine Canvey Island, for example, competing against and all these different sports, you know, so they do well.
Sport, very important for Gibraltar. Indeed, at the top of page six of my copy of the Gibraltar Chronicle, the Today in History feature Mick begins Stoke City became the first English football team ever to play in Gibraltar on the 3rd of June 1959. They drew one all with a Gibraltar FA selection. Well, as a Crystal Palace supporter, I wonder if that uh, that result reflects um, uh, better on Stoke City or on Gibraltar. We'll leave that for the listener to decide. The other intriguing thing about Gibraltar is that you are very, very close to the leadership. I managed to meet in the course of six days there the tourism minister, the chief minister, who is effectively the prime minister and the political head, and also the governor, uh, Sir David Steele. And Cleo Pascal says that that is a characteristic of small countries. Yeah, I think that people are, are uh, we're social animals and we're designed to live in communities. So when you talk about uh, London, for example, you don't talk about London, you talk about, you know, Notting Hill or Brixton or whatever, you know, whatever. And that that is that's that's where you feel psychologically safe and where you belong and where you think you're going to be meeting people who, you know, are similar to you in terms of values and that sort of stuff. And so if you have a country that's small enough to essentially function like that sort of community, like an extended family, uh, and what you'll find in these microstates is the politicians are very close to the people. Uh, like you can call up a, a politician in Monaco or San Marino or Liechtenstein if you're from that country and say, what are you doing? I don't agree with you. Your grandmother will, you know, you will talk to their grandmother to yell at them at a family reunion. There's much more <laughs> cohesiveness, right? Let's delve into the details of these these countries. Do you think if I blindfolded you and took you to a place in Europe, would you be able to tell whether you were in a microstate or a, dare I say, normal country? So uh, if you took the blindfold off and I could uh, look in the eyes of the people walking down the street (laughs) and they looked back at me, then I'd say I'm in a microstate because they know who walks down their street normally and they'd be going, who is this new person we haven't seen before? Well, that's a much, much better answer than mine, which was simply going to be uh, you look at the number plates and if they're short, you're in a micro state. <laughs> well, that to that's that's smarter and easier. <laughs> that's very kind of Cleo. Anyway, I clocked G1966, 1966, which presumably is about the most sought after number in the Gibraltar Motor Vehicle Licensing Centre, possibly along with oh, uh, 1918, 1945, who knows? Oh, you mean the World Cup? Yes, and the World Cup and the end of the First World War, end of the Second World War, they are very, very uh, focused on what is happening. Oh, it's so sweet, Mick. They, they say, oh, are you from home? And they call the UK home as though they're only sort of temporarily away there, even though many of them have lived their entire lives in Gibraltar. That's quite interesting, seeing as they also um, voted almost 90%, I think it was, to remain within the European Union during the, shall I say, infamous Brexit referendum. But as I said before, I am not an expert on these tiny states, although I have at least visited Andorra, which nestles, and I think that really is the right word, in the Pyrenees, closer to the Mediterranean than the Atlantic. The occasion, uh, about 20 years ago now, was when Simon and I hiked along the GR10, 
the legendary Pyrenean footpath to make a radio series about it, with occasional diversions from the route. Now I really can't resist this. The way to Andorra begins along a country lane and it's lined with a series of road signs which have been closed up presumably for the summer. But the locks come off this one so I'm just going to open it up and see what it says. And it reads Avalanche. hope that's not a sign of things to come. And I'd better close it up just in case any passing motorist gets a bit of a shock. Not that there are any cars, but I have just seen a red squirrel running across the road. For a while, my path followed the general direction of a road that was intended to link this valley with the Ordino Valley in Andorra, but it was abandoned, partly through environmental pressure, but mostly because of the immense cost and doubtful benefits of the project. Occasional rays of sun refracted through the rain-covered flowers, creating a beautiful impressionist picture of sparkling reds, yellows, blues and greens. And as I climbed up to the pass, the Port du Rat, an eagle cruised overhead. It's a bit difficult to make out in the mist, but just at the top of the ridge ahead of me, there's two big cairns of stones, which I hope means I'm actually at the Port du Rat, the pass which marks the border between France and Andorra and indeed the start of the descent. On closer inspection maybe the view isn't quite so stupendous. You just notice the total devastation that skiing has wrought on it. I can see a cable car lift zigzagging up the mountain opposite me. Everything bigger than a braid of grass seems to have been cut away. There's pipes for water, there's all kinds of huts scattered around. It might look lovely in snow, but in August I'm afraid I'm not at all impressed. My efforts to find a path on the other side went unrewarded, but the road was all too evident and I hitched the lift to the capital, Andorra la Vella, from a charming couple of Spanish civil servants. After three times round the little city's traffic clock one-way system, I managed to find my hotel and meet Mark Crichton, originally from Zambia, now a ski instructor. Andorra's for the last 20 or 30 years has had a, a very big boom. Tourism is very big in the winter because the big ski stations, five ski stations keep uh, Andorra going. Summer as well, you've got a lot of people going through Andorra. It's a mountain place, you've got uh, tax-free goods as well. Now tourism, or skiing in particular, has quite an impact on the environment, doesn't it? Uh, it does, yeah. There's been a lot of kind of opposition, you know, to kind of stop the, the ski stations getting bigger. And I mean, I think that's probably Andorra's got to its maximum size in, in ski stations. A lot's happened to Andorra over the past 10 years. After seven centuries of existence, democracy has arrived. Thousands of immigrants have come to take advantage of the new prosperity. And one of the traditional industries, smuggling, has been curtailed by new European Union rules.
Andorra remains a geographical, political and cultural hodgepodge with strong Catalan connections. That evening, Andorra La Vella was celebrating its Saints' Day with a medieval fair and a parade of 12-foot-high papier-mâché figures accompanied by traditional instruments playing non-traditional tunes. Here comes someone who looks like an Arabic prince, dressed up in a fine hat and feathers, carrying a, a very threatening looking dagger. And all these figures are lining up in the main square, where, which is now filled up with, with people. They seem to be mostly local. And something which I think is dangerously akin to Morris dancing is breaking out over in the corner. Next morning, I was the only passenger on the early bus out of Andorra La Vella. As we travelled towards the French border at Pas de la Casa, the driver kept up a running commentary for my benefit, pointing out new ski stations as well as the one or two surviving old houses, and as the temperature gauge in the bus dropped to zero, explaining how we were now crossing the highest pass in Europe to stay open all year. Sunday morning in the Andorran border town of Pasta la Casa and you just can't move for coaches and people getting off them to go duty-free shopping. After all, even when the ski slopes are closed, the shops are open and looking around here I can see supermarkets, supermercados, supermarchés selling everything, cut price alcohol, tobacco, perfume, watches and cameras because Andorra is exploiting its position outside the European Union to become, I suppose, Europe's biggest duty-free shop. Top travel journalism, Simon. Um, I'd just like to ask you, is duty-free shopping one of the raison d'etre of these micro-states? Yes, Gibraltar prides itself on its low prices and Iceland is a good contender too because it is a very expensive country once you get out of the airport. But if you're just staying there to change planes between Europe and North America, well, what are you going to do? Go shopping and they've got very, very attractive prices. And talking of going further, looking globally, Cleo Pascal says smaller cousins share a lot of geopolitical DNA. When I started visiting them globally, I started to see a lot of similarities. So the society in Monaco is very similar, actually, to the society in Tonga. And so it, it became much more about understanding humans and how human society functions and how population size affects uh, governance structures, economic models, all that sort of stuff, and realize that they're not really well reflected in statistics. You know, GDP doesn't let you understand the economy of Samoa. It just, it's a totally different structure because of the population size. It, it, it falls off that characterization. So I learned a lot I, I, and I still am with the help of friends from my microstate legion across the world. Well, many thanks for Cleo Pascal for joining us. And if you would like to find out more about the world, follow her at Cleo Pascal. That's Pascal with a K, not a C, on Twitter. But of course, don't forget to follow us 
at you should have BT on Twitter. But actually, next week, we are going from the smallest countries in Europe to the biggest country in the world and exploring Russia with our dear friend Francis Lindsay Gordon. Well, it's news to me that Russia's the biggest country in the world. And um, along with many of the smallest countries in the world, I've uh, never actually been to it. So I look forward to finding out more from uh, you and Francis. One thing before we go, I forgot to ask what it was like actually getting back from your green-listed micro-state or brackets dependency of Gibraltar. Very, very tough, Mick. Getting out there is very easy. Coming back goodness, you have to pay £30 for the test to allow you to board the plane from Gibraltar. That's a British requirement. Then you have to book yourself a um, arrival PCR test to be taken on day zero, the day you get back, or the following day, or the one after that. That costs another £69 for me. And only then can you go about the business of filling in the uh, passenger locator form, which the more I do it, the more confusing it gets, it is as though somebody has just handed you an exam paper for which you have not revised. <laughs> so, uh, well, but was it worth it? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, climbing up to the top of the rock, looking across at Africa, um, at the hills of Andalusia, and just feeling, yes, there is a world out there. And the sooner we can get to explore more of it, the better. And what about the monkeys? We failed to mention the, the Barbary apes, I've been told they're called. Yes, they, they are macaque monkeys. Um, they're quite active, um, not least because having missed tourists quite a lot, um, they are now very, very focused on your bag. So you have to carry your bag in front of you, as happens in a number of um, cities with high crime <laughs> rates. Um, otherwise, you are going to have it pinched off you and then they will take it to the nearest tree and they will gradually pick through your belongings and discard the ones they don't want. Um, uh, I witnessed this and um, all they took was the sun cream. <laughs> So until uh, next week, uh, from me, Mick Webb. And me, Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.